morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, uh, how's your practice? <laughs> what is this? Is you ready? <laughs> Everyone looks a little guilty. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> How is your daily spiritual practice going? If anybody does not have one, if you will see me after class. <laughs> Bill's going to start taking grades for us, passing out progress reports. I could do that. I was kidding. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> and if you're watching uh, from elsewhere, a uh, pajama person or a wine and cheese person, welcome. And thanks to William. I don't see Olivia today. She must be over in the church doing that, that thing. So William's got it by himself. So we'll try not to mess him up. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, so, in the preview that went out about this class, and if you're not on the email list, it's easy to get on the email list. If you'll just fill out a card at the back on one of the back tables and leave it, um, we'll make sure that you get put on that. But I ask um, if you would be willing, if some of you, and if everybody does it, we'll be here till 4 o'clock. But um, if some of you would be willing to share with us what your elevator speech is about ordinary life. Now, if, in case you don't know what an elevator speech is, uh, Holly has assured me, by the way, that she has beautiful handwriting. I was a teacher for 12 years. I had to write on whiteboards all the time. I never had any complaints that they couldn't read my handwriting. Yeah. I remember when they were blackboards. <laughs> and I remember, I remember dinosaurs too. So, um, an elevator speech is uh, what you say to someone um, if you want to engage their attention. You don't want them to shut down. So, when they ask you, "What is ordinary life about?" or "Why do you come here?" I promise you, if you say something like, I'm going to Sunday school, that shuts people down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so what do you say? We were going to ask, and now the elevator speech is not a sermon. <laughs> the elevator door is open, you say what you got to say, and they close. So, so it's like six seconds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think Scott Wells. That's right. Those of us have gotten stuck Scott in the door. Scott Wells is first up, and I think he's a lot like me. He can't say anything in six seconds. Uh -huh. But here we go, Scott Wells. Well, I think you should come to the class because it's a different way of looking at religion that we've all been brought up, uh, many of us, uh, with different backgrounds, and this is an open concept that's open and available to everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're agnostic, atheist, whether that you're gay or straight or whatever faith that you have or don't have. This is open and welcome for all. It's a different way of looking at things in a non-dual way, and also that the teacher does magic from time to time. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, uh, several years ago, a number of years ago, a woman came in the back. I was standing back there at the beginning of class, and uh, this woman walked up to me and said, you know why I think people come to Ordinary Life? I said, why? And she said, just to see what you're going to say next. <laughs> All right, here's one. Yes, I appreciate um, Ordinary Life because I learn things that can be applied to everyday life instead of scripture, which I can't sometimes relate to. All right. Thank you. You got one up here? 
Tom Doherty. Um, Ordinary Life class is a place for seekers and searchers and clumsy people to uh, find a thoughtful challenge and direction for their spiritual journeys. Thank you. Here's one here. I'm afraid I say, it's not church. <laughs> it's a place where you can discuss metaphysics and philosophy. <laughs> and, and, you know, come with me if you dare. Oh, that's good. There's some way back there. It's a place where <clears throat> they have occasional alcohol on weekends, cookies, <laughs> cookies. And the guy who runs it says what's on your mind and what most other ministers are afraid to say. Whoa. Thank you. George, that's George Stroth, and George gave me a label. Can I tell him? Sure. Rebel in a robe. <laughs> I love it. I love promoting this class. When I tell people about this class, I tell them it's a lecture format class taught by a man who's a family therapist and an ordained minister. When he can't be there for class, he'll get one of his Buddhist friends to come teach the class. <laughs> and he teaches us things that, that help us have a spiritual approach to our daily life. I would like to say to my friends about this class, it's a fellowship, a learning experience, and a gourmet taste of cookies and cake. And occasionally, not lately, we have had some magic. Okay, a couple more. How do you eat a spiritual elephant? One bite at a time. So <laughs> I see this class as a way to take the unknowable, the ununderstandable, the mystery of it all, and try to understand it bit by bit. Wow, thank you. <laughs> One more. Oh, two more. Being in Houston, Texas, a lot of folks, especially my age, are uh, turned off by prost proselytizing. So uh, I just say check out the podcast. Okay, oh, and then one up here, and then we'll quit. I came here with a big chip on my shoulder for organized religion. Took me a while to be convinced by my friend to come. If I leave here totally, completely confused, I'm so excited because that means there's so much real stuff that Bill and all the great minds know that I don't know, and so it's just exciting. One more. Thank you. Um, I have a, uh, a set of younger um, friends, and it's really hard to explain to them really what the class is to me. But I just tell them, uh, because they're set in their ways, that um, I come here to learn how to, how to learn better and to learn to question everything that I've been taught by my parents. Um, so <laughs> um, in a good way. <laughs> but uh, yeah. OK. Thank you. Thank everybody. Vanna. Leave it up. Oh, well, I'm just going to pull it over a little bit. Is okay. that okay? So we can kind of. And I told you I have neat handwriting. <laughs> just kidding. That's very good, yes. <laughs> I want to take a picture of that before we go. Okay, we will. Post it on the next Sunday. Or so the, uh, the title of this class is Coloring Outside the Lines and uh, using a very full palette. And Holly's going to 
be responsible for the coloring outside the lines part. Mostly. Mostly. And I'm gonna. You're gonna rein it back in. <laughs> color with a palette that we're using. Yeah. Mostly, but mm -hmm. we're for sharing this. Mm -hmm. So, in, one of my trainings is as an artist. Um, I was an art major in college. I taught art at HSPBA and various schools for 12 years following college. I, I went to HSPBA. And basically, when I was probably six, seven, eight years old, never stopped drawing, my parents took notice and got me in art lessons. So when I was little, I drew like this, right? I just painted, I just drew. So that I could learn to draw like this, to for, sort of follow the rules, right? I learned the rules so that I can know how to mix colors, so that I can draw from life. I spent a lot of time with my art teacher, who lives down the street from you, actually, um, right at the park, drawing houses and perspective. And you, know, you learn all the rules. But you learn the rules so you can break the rules again. <laughs> that's not mine. That's actually one of my kids. But, <laughs> but you kind of learn the rules so that you can go back to freedom. Um, but really, I learned the rules so that I can paint more like this, so that I can paint from imagination, so that I can draw from life if I want to. But none of us have ever actually seen a wolf breathing butterflies, or luna moths, rather. It, but learning the rules helps us learn also how to work outside the rules. Taking perspective helps us learn how to see around it. Learning about negative space helps us to see uh, the things in between. Not just things as they are, but what else is around. So the context here is, you know, being an artist, um, I could go on about how we need arts in schools, but I won't, um, really helps you see. And for me, it was a tool in learning how to analyze learning how to think critically, learning how to think outside the box or outside the lines, even though I can also color inside the lines. It helped me learn how to think outside of that. You know, one of your pieces of art is hanging in my study. Yeah, I think instead of paying you for marrying us, I just gave you a piece of art. Yeah, I, yeah. I cherish it. Yeah, I, I think it. it was a little nod to that we have a moral obligation to be happy. If I remember, it's a lady kind yeah. of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, yeah. I uh, try to keep secret what I do when I'm out, outside of here for a lot of reasons. And um, what generated this idea in our conversation mm -hmm. was that sometime last year, Sherry and I attended the 80th birthday party of a dear friend of ours, mm -hmm. and it was a surprise. And I think there were probably about 50 people there, 40, 50 people. It was, a, and, and the, one of the things that made it so great, it was a surprise. Mm -hmm. And people who had had a connection with this woman over a 50-year period uh, were invited. Not everybody had known us, known her for 50 years, but um, people who knew her were there and people who were partnered with people who knew her. So maybe they did not know her or know the circle of friends that we were in. Seating was random, and I was seated next to this guy. 
And uh, he turned to me, uh, we introduced ourselves to each other, and he said, what do you do? And before I could answer, people at the table answered for me. (laughs) And I was outed. You know, oh, Bill teaches the Sunday school class that I'm always referring to. Yeah, you said that. I I just could feel, I could just, you know, I didn't didn't want that. Because I didn't know him. I didn't know what his, you know, code words like church, Sunday school, all that just closed people down. So after that had kind of died down, he said, so you, you teach a class. What kind of teacher are you? And this was not rehearsed, which you will find out. It was just one of those things that just came down and through. And I said, I'm a smart-ass spiritual teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and we are all smart-asses in training. <laughs> and, and I cannot tell you his response. Not that it was bad. He just had such a visceral reaction to that and he said I've never heard those words put together that way before <laughs> tell me more yeah. which is exactly what you want with an elevator right. speech you want somebody to say well that sounds interesting or tell me more or I know somebody who could use that you know <laughs> I have a master for a friend and I said well what I what I try to do in my teaching is create a context Uh, where people can grow in understanding their true identity, where they can um, grow in their skill and capacity to have a meaningful life, where they can gain in spiritual and religious literacy so that they can make a meaningful contribution to the world in which they live. Now, you can copy this. You can steal this. Ordinary life creates a crucible in which people can deepen their awareness of who they are, learn how to develop a meaningful meaningful relationship with others, grow in religious and spiritual intelligence, and make a difference in the world. So I'm um, asking you to make this little paragraph part of your own spiritual practice every day and memorize it and go into the world and say it. That's it. So we get to work on these things every time we meet. Mm-hmm. Although it's easier for me or for Holly or for us together because we've been living with what we're going to teach for a week or so, and you're just hearing it for the first time. Mm-hmm. That's why we repeat things in here from time to time. Mm-hmm. It, takes about he- it takes hearing something about three times before you finally begin to, to get it. I thought it was seven before we start to remember That takes it. a load off me. I can yeah. teach the same thing. We'll be, ta- same, we'll be right here next week. <laughs> same thing next week. Yeah. Okay. I describe you as um, a, a Buddhist, Baptist, Methodist union analyst. That'll work. Mm-hmm. That's how I describe this okay. class. So, <laughs> right. When I was in ninth grade, I, I went to St. John's before I went to HSPVA, and I had a English teacher named Mr. Cullinan. And if any of you have adult children about my age and they went to St. John's, they had Mr. Cullinan. And he was a grammar perfectionist. So we wrote 
papers and we would get a content grade like, okay, what you're saying is okay, but your grammar is abysmal. <laughs> and I remember getting one of my first papers back and I got a negative 19 on my grammar score. <laughs> the point was he wanted us to learn the rules, right? He wanted us to learn the rules so that we could craft writing, learn how to be a good writer. And it did help, it helped me in college, but I think about my favorite poet who is E.E. E. Cummings, who broke all of Mr. Cullinan's rules. I mean, we had, to, we had this song, C1 goes between a Anyway, we, it was, we had all these songs about how to remember commas and semicolons and lists and how do you make them. I can teach you all this also. I'll do a whole class on comma rules, how about? Um, <laughs> and, but, some, but my favorite poet, I think part of the reason I like E.E. E. Cummings is the same reason that I value being trained as an artist that he is someone who had to learn the rules to break them. And I'm going to guess that if I gave you all 30 seconds, can anyone read this poet out, poem out loud? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a poem about color, I'll read it. The sky was candy, luminous, edible, spry pinks, shy lemons, greens, cool chocolates, under a locomotive, spouting violets. So his poems are as much pictures as they are words, as much, as much images as they are about sort of breaking the grammar rules. He, he also wrote, and you know, a little, but one of the things I loved about E.E. E. Cummings was that he always wrote in small letters. Uh, he, his name is always in small letters. He, uh, he, he doesn't have this sort of formality around using language that Probably he was taught in ninth grade by Mr. Cullinan. I think Mr. Cullinan was his grammar teacher, and he just rebelled <laughs> against Mr. Cullinan. Um, this is, you know, but he uses syntax in such a clever way to make us sort of think outside the box. And he makes, his writing makes us pause. His writing makes us consider. His writing makes us read things differently. And this poem um, is really sweet to me because it was, my best friend read it at mine and Josh's wedding. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in, this one, sorry, I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear. And whatever is done by only me is your doing, my darling, I fear. No fate, for you are my fate, my sweet. I want no world, for you beautiful, you are my world, my true. And it's you are whatever a moon has always meant, and whatever a sun will always sing is you. Here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here is the root of the root, and the bud of the bud, and the sky of the sky of a tree called life, which grows higher than soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. Wow. Yeah. You know that uh, after we had spent the time we did getting ready for this, and I looked at this again last night, uh, the root of the root is mm -hmm. a phrase that also appears in a poem by Rumi. Uh, yeah. So that if you get to the root of the root of the root of mm -hmm. you, the mm -hmm. way Rumi talks about it in that poetry. Right. And, and Rumi's mystical Sufism is the, uh, an expression of the faith that getting to the root of the root of the root of you mm -hmm. is what will solve our problem. That's right. 
So I think poetry, art, and mysticism all have something in common, which is mm -hmm. holding impossibilities with mm -hmm. possibilities. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I'm going to say later that that's the biggest color we have in our palette mm -hmm. is mysticism. Mm -hmm. and, and, this, and so many of the mystics wrote poetry. Mm -hmm. And you know, poetry sort of is a way of um, describing the indescribable, mm -hmm. of putting words to something. Uh, Alice Walker says she writes poetry because of the urgency of despair. Mm -hmm. And that poetry is what can sort of say something about that despair. Um, Sherry's uh, spiritual practice is poetry. She reads poetry every day. And, and um, if you uh, are interested in this particular segment of what we're talking about and you don't own it, I encourage you to get a book called Love Poems from God. It's a big book, and it has these mystical poetry poet, poets that we're talking about in it, uh, Rumi and Rabia and a number of other people, and they're just absolutely wonderful, wonderful ways to think because they do get outside the box, and um, they capture this, the, the essence of non-duality in, in such a wonderful way. You, you might remember that a few weeks ago I used the lines, whole persons cannot be nurtured in a context of social chaos. And a coherent social order cannot be constructed by dysfunctional people. Now this is on our palette too, to mm -hmm. color from, to mm -hmm. take, take our agenda from these two realities. What is, I hate the word dysfunctional, and when it first started being used back in the mm, very early, late 70s, early 80s in psychology, people started talking about dysfunctional families. Mm. And I hated that phrase because I've been in this racket a little while. <laughs> I've never seen a functional family. <laughs> That's a relief. And, <laughs> You know, Sherry says uh, that um, people who are in mental institutions are people who just happen to get caught. <laughs> you know, you know that you have the ability to just go out of your mind. We all do. We all we have the capacity. But what does it mean, in, in a sense, to be really a functional person in the society, and the skills that are involved in relating? And we'll talk about some of those. And how do we create a coherent social order, mm -hmm. uh, which is also very important? So um, I started calling these talks a couple of years ago, living in the territory between the no longer and the not yet. And um, I've also spoken, as you know, about the end of cosmological dualism. God is up there. We're down here. There's a big gulf between us. And we can't get God unless Jesus had to die to get God to like us again. That's cosmological dualism. Much of the New Testament was written with that mindset. Mm -hmm. It does not reflect the heart and soul and teachings of Jesus at all, Okay. Um, and we've talked about the end of individual salvation, which is what a thing that runs this country. And we've got to learn to see that we're all in, in this together. Uh, Richard Rohr is transitioning out of being the head of the, head of the CAC, uh, Center for Action 
and contemplation. And this conference that's coming up this spring will be the last one in which he is the chief uh, star or figurehead. As a matter of fact, all the speakers at this conference that's coming up, May? In May? Um, and several of you are, are, are going um, to, to that conference. Um, the speakers at the conference will be what he calls the core faculty of the mm -hmm. living school. Mm -hmm. The living school is the way that the people around Richard Rohr have come up with this idea of continuing his legacy by having clearly in mind the principles of the CAC, the principles of the living school, and the core teachers are going to be uh, teaching those. They have hundreds of people who apply for the living school, to be admitted to the living school every year. I don't know how many they accept. I didn't get in. You didn't get mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. We're actually mm -hmm. accepting a couple of people. They, mm -hmm. applications are well over a thousand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So over a thousand people apply. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, Father Roar has, uh, or the organization has, I think he does very little of this actually, uh, a paper, um, product that they send out periodically called the mendicant. The word mendicant means beggar. He's a Franciscan, and Franciscans um, are very much like Buddhists in the sense that they, they beg for their sustenance. They don't get a salary. They're not officially re recognized. They dress the way they do um, to separate themselves from other monastic orders, mm -hmm. you know. So these cannibals captured the, the missionaries, mm -hmm. and one cannibal was talking to the other, said, I captured that missionary the other day and, and cooked it and ate it. Boy, it was tough. And the other <laughs> man said, what, how did you cook the missionary? He said, I boiled it like usual. And he said, how was it dressed? And he said, it was this brown robe with a rope around it. He said, oh, they're friars. Um, <laughs> Would you believe that that's not in my notes? I absolutely believe that that's not in your notes. And I also believe that there's like 25 more just like that that aren't in your notes. I'm going to read to you what, what he's talking about. The context we're talking about, chaotic social order. Yeah. And he said, this is a context in which we're doing our work. How can the CAC continue to be a service building on what God has already done with us and offer something of further value that can have authority and believability on its own? Furthermore, we are called to do this in what many describe as a time of major regression, denial of the past, and even collapse. This is no exaggeration. As we look at the state of our planet, our worldwide politics of despair, the abandonment of many religious traditions and Western Christianity in particular, the loss of moral authority through the pedophilia crisis in the Catholic Church, and what historians will probably refer to as the abandonment of truth or anyone's claims to truth. How do we rebuild on such a non-foundation? That's our challenge. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's really interesting to me that Roar sounds a little bit like Nietzsche. Um, we, most of us have heard of Nietzsche as being the sayer of God is dead. 
And for that, he was branded a nihilist and someone who was hopeless. But as I read Nietzsche and as I reread him, Nietzsche was actually full of hope. The god that he was saying was dead was that sky god, that cosmologically dual god that said, I'll save you from yourself. So what Nietzsche, what actually you mentioned going mad, we're all a little bit mad and just the ones who get caught are in the insane asylums. Nietzsche ended his life in an asylum. He was branded as mad. His sister actually had him committed. And, but his hopefulness was to call on the best aspects of humanity. So his deep hope was that we are better than we think we are. We have to stop thinking that that ability to be hopeful, that ability to be good is outside of us. And he really demanded of, of his readership to, to call on that goodness within, to, to find what is good within in order to create more hope. And I wonder you know, if part of the reason he went mad is because he didn't have a community around him. And he lived during the last half of the 1800s during, you know, the, in Germany. And we see in the early part of Germany this sort of totalitarianism starts rising. So he see he's living in a time where all of that was festering. And he wanted to instill hope in the human race. One of the things that, one of the stories that sort of surrounds Nietzsche's end of life was that he was either already in the asylum or he was just before he was into the asylum, he saw from his window a horse being beaten on the street by the rider, just beaten. And he ran to the street and he took the horse in his arms and was soothing it and said, I understand you, I understand you. That's not the act of a hopeless man. That's not the act of someone who's a nihilist. That's the act of someone who's deeply compassionate and is wounded because what he's seeing is not compassionate around him. So I, 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 when I reread Nietzsche recently, it was really a really important reframing, because I always just had this, Nietzsche's the one who says God is dead <laughs> attitude towards him. And I was able to reread him with a tremendous amount of empathy, a tremendous amount of hopefulness, and a tremendous amount of, of authenticity in his despair for how the human condition was so fraught. And I find it so interesting that so many people who are sort of voices of hope, voices of calling us to be better versions of ourselves, let's point a few out. Jesus, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, these people died because they wanted us to be better than we were. And they, their teachings are about that. Be the best version of yourself. So Nietzsche has, um, in his allegory, thus spoke Zarathustra, about this, this idea of the Superman, which was actually co-opted by the, by the Nazi party. And that's also part of why Nietzsche was sort of dismissed as a nihilist, 
but his, again, his sister sort of betrayed him, and, and she was a, in the Nazi party and brought this to the Nazi party as, well, this is what, he, what we mean by a Superman. But what Nietzsche meant was a Superman is one that surpasses himself. A Superman finds that best aspect of the self and lives from that place. So I find Nietzsche actually tremendously hopeful but very sad because he did not find the community around him. So hang on to the God is dead yeah. thing because we'll mm -hmm. come back to it before we're, we're yeah. done here. Um, to say that to most people is, I mean, we've all grown up all of our lives if we took religious instructions, believing that God was up there, God was out there. So we've all been taught. And, of course, what comes from the field of evolutionary cosmology is that God is everywhere. Mm -hmm. God is here. It, it, God doesn't come down from above, but from up. And, and um, a few weeks ago, I said there's just no way to tell people that they've devoted their lives to living an illusion. No easy way, no polite way to do that. We, we, we have to wake up. And while I was thinking about this, I had a memory of a uh, Twilight Zone program. How many of you remember the Twilight Zone? Mm -hmm. <laughs> everybody here, practically. I own every episode of the Twilight Zone. And I will tell you, they're no good. I mean, they... Uh, the production value of the Twilight Zone is awful. Mm -hmm. The scripts and the ideas are brilliant. Mm -hmm. And uh, I could tell you the plots of uh, numerous Twilight shows, but we don't have that much time. <laughs> we'll be airing the Twilight Zone all there week. There <laughs> was one. There was one. There was one. Mm -hmm. Where these aliens came, they were very human-like, and, and they, they came to the earth, and they were so kind and so generous to everybody that they met. And they had a book that they kept consulting, How to Serve Mankind. And they provided health care, and they provided food, and they provided structure, infrastructure work. They did all this stuff, and the people just ate it up. We have had somebody come to save us until at the very end of the show, they discovered that the book was a cookbook. <laughs> How to serve mankind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but they had bought it hook, line, and sinker. And I thought, boy, that Rod Serling, I don't know who wrote that particular edition, but Rod Serling and the writers of that show were prophetic because people buy into these programs that are going to save us and the structures are not designed to save people. They're designed to benefit those who created the structure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Holly has persuaded me. <laughs> I, we got to talk about this. I'm loving it. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> um, this is a book, I do recommend it actually. It's an easy read and it's young adult literature. It's actually a great audio listen as well. And it's a four book series. How many of you know this book? Okay. Oh, a lot. Yeah. 
So th the giver is, set, is, a, is a dystopian, kind of a post-apocalyptic young adult novel. By the way, I just we were listening to On Being on the Way here, and I was reminded that apocalypse means the uncovering. Right. So post-apocalyptic is actually uncovering of truth, right? So this novel has a young man whose name is Jonas, who, and he lives in a society where sameness is what's valued. So everybody dresses the same, everybody has the same size house, everybody has the same income, everybody has the same bike, everyone at certain ages, they all celebrate their birthday on the same day. So if you're turning eight at any time during that year, you're all celebrated on the last day of the year. So there's no individualism at all. And you're assigned a family, you're assigned a job, you're assigned an entire way of being that is not chosen by you. It was a way to respond to the fall. Well, let's just make everything same so that nobody has anything to fight about. But what that also did was they were required to um, take a medicine every day that repressed their emotions, that repressed their way of seeing, that repressed how they could engage with one another. They could not feel love. In other words, love was a, um, a useless emotion that had become way overused. And Jonas is given the job at age 12 of being the receiver of memory. So he has to go study with the elder in the community who is the only one who knows the truth, the only one who sees what really is. I didn't say this, but their world is in tones of gray. There is no color in their world. And Jonas's first insight into that he's different is that he's tossing an apple and he sees a glimmer of red. He sees in color. So one of the things, and I have made Bill listen to this book. I'm not sure if you're really loving it or if you're just trying to make me feel good, but I love it. And I really love the idea that seeing in color is seeing reality. Seeing in color is not about always being joyful, but seeing what is. Seeing in color is being able to hold the distribution of uh, the range of emotion, the range of human experience. And Jonas, at 12, must learn how to do this for his community. And his despair is, no one can see what I see. He feels lonely, like Nietzsche, right? He feels the loneliness of being the only one who can see in color. You'll find out what happens. And the unfairness. It is, and, and how tragic it is that people are protected from what is. How tragic it is mm -hmm. that they are living in an illusion. Mm -hmm. that they can't experience love. If someone were to go to the Ordinary Life website uh -huh. and read the principles of Ordinary Life and the core teaching mm -hmm. of the teacher of Ordinary Life, mm -hmm. it is that the central truth of and for spiritual practice is paying attention to what is right. and developing the resources to be with that without judgment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an agenda for you. Mm -hmm. Right. So what are the colors? Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, some insights that both of us have gotten from this book, uh, Active Hope. And I keep saying by Joanna Macy, but there is a um, male author, too. I think, he's, I think Chris Johnson is much younger than Joanna. Joanna Macy's in her... 91. 91? She teaches at um, the, my 
graduate have, program. Have you had her? Nope. She's very part-time now, but she used to teach Anybody with... who's 91 is very part-time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so she lectures mostly, which means, yeah, so, yeah. So um, in, in the book, Active Hope, um, she says that there are three stories that are going on all the time. The, uh, one of the stories is a story that she calls business as usual, mm -hmm. which is... Going on as if, it's choosing to see in black and white. It's cho choosing to see sort of those tones of gray and acting as if nothing is wrong. Acting as if we can go on about business as usual. We can go on about deforestation or um, digging everywhere we want to dig for oil, not coming up with alternative solutions. We can go on with the business as usual of racism, of sexism, of... Uh, it's not as bad as people think. Right, that's exactly right. We can go on believing that. Uh -huh. Or... <laughs> or yeah. we can step into the great unraveling, which is a bit more disturbing because it, it acknowledges the inevitable economic decline, the inevitable resource depletion, um, the inevitable climate change, the obvious social divisions that are existing and growing worse, the wars that uh, are happening, um, and the mass extinctions that are mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. You read about the species extinctions and uh, there's a possibility that one species that could go is ours. Is ours. Mm -hmm. Well, there's also, there is, to frame that a little bit differently, ex extinction is actually a natural process of evolution. You know, there, there is actually a natural extinction that happens in all species because they evolve or adapt into what is required mm -hmm. next. Yeah. Both of yeah. these stories, by the way. Dinosaurs evolved to be chickens for example. Really? I, have some, I had some dinosaurs. Yeah, dinosaurs evolved to be chickens? No. Chickens are absolutely one of the only remaining descendants of dinosaurs, directly. Those little beady eyes and no arms. And <laughs> flightless birds. <laughs> reptilian legs. I learned something today. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. By the way, there, there's, there, there's something that these two stories have in right. common. The human is the center of the story. Mm -hmm. The human is the main character in both these stories. It's like the environment, the world, resources, everything exists for us. We're, we're the pinnacle. Mm -hmm. Creation was all about us. There's something else that's interesting about these two stories is that they're irreconcilable. You can't go on with as business as usual and also believe in the great unraveling. So they're sort of polar ends. And do we, do we know the climate activist, young woman Greta Thunberg? Um, definitely a hero, or shero, I should say, um, who has really piloted the, the strike the, the young people striking, the climate justice. And her, she is gifted with Asperger's. So what that gifts her is the ability to not give a fill in the blank what other people say about her. You know a word I wanted to use. <laughs> you just can't use it in church. <laughs> um, you know, but 
she, she is gifted with the ability to speak the truth toward those who want to be operating as business as usual. But the problem is that those two voices can't hear each other. So where Joanna Macy kind of points us is. Well, she said there's yeah. another story called mm -hmm. The Great Turning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, this is where hope lies. <laughs> well, it does yeah. paint a more, uh, a more hopeful picture, which is um, what we try to do in here. And if you want to see evidence of the great turning, look around. Look at the people in this room. And where you put your values and how you live your lives and what matters to you. Um, look at people who show up at a roar conference and the, the, the tremendous influence that is it. Or look at Joanna Macy's work herself. Um, mm -hmm. uh, what allows us to see as the artists do, right? To see as E.E. E. Cummings did, to see a comma and go, I wonder what would happen if I put it here. And to, to operate as if we can have radical imagination around the world we want to create. She, like Nietzsche, says, we might surprise even ourselves by what we bring forth. Now, it's not that one of these stories is true and one's not. They all exist. They all exist mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. We pick the one we want to live in. That's a choice that 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 we make. Um, so I'm going to do this really, really quickly okay. because we're running um, out of time. Um, these are a few of the colors that are on the palette that you'll be hearing about in the, the weeks and months ahead. What does it mean to be made in God's image and likeness? what it means to believe that we're all connected, what it means to practice justice and compassion, what it means to speak and be the truth, what real leadership means, and what it means to be part of a global community. If these sound familiar, it is because they come from the Reconciling Jesus documents. Those are all in that. And, and um, I've just made it, um, well, I don't want to say that. <laughs> Here's a few more colors. What do we mean by hoping for a better world? How do you define hope and better world? How can we learn compassion? What is really going on in our various worlds? That is, what is happening? How do we practice empathy? What is engaged mindfulness? This is a big movement in Buddhism mm -hmm. at the moment. Mm -hmm. It's called engaged Buddhism because mm -hmm. the Buddhists have kind of been criticized for not being socially active, socially engaged. That's not entirely true, but um, there's enough truth in it that it's being addressed. But what is, what is engaged mindfulness uh, and how do we learn to love our enemies? Now, if these colors sound familiar, mm -hmm. It's because they're in the Charter for Compassion by mm -hmm. Karen Armstrong, which we're also using both of those uh, documents to... I was going to do a whole section on mysticism, but we don't have time. Well, how about we point back to the little poem that's on the website by Hafiz? We, with their, the, it, we'll start and end with poetry, how about? The poem okay. that is on the Ordinary Life website... You took it off. I didn't take it off. It's still at the bottom. Is it still there? Mm-hmm. So maybe you took it off. No, I didn't. I don't know how to do that. 
Um, we took it off the email that goes out and put an uh, Alan Watts quote on the email. How about you guys check our work and see if this poem is still on the Ordinary Life website, is which is the small man builds cages for everyone. He knows while the sage who has to duck his head when the moon is low keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful rowdy prisoners. Okay, so that's, that's your job. You get it? You got to go out and drop keys. We have so much more, but we can't do it. Thank you all for coming. No matter who you are, no matter what happens, where you go, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Thank you. I think we have to.